Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. First, we are giving opportunity of employment to a quarter of a million of the unemployed, especially the young men who have dependents, to let them go into forestry and flood prevention work. And in creating this civilian conservation corps, we are killing two birds with one stone. We are clearly enhancing the value of our natural resources, and at the same time, we are relieving an appreciable amount of actual distress. And we are conserving not only our natural resources, but also our human resources. Hello. Hello. So what is what is that then? Is that a mystery voice competition? That's your great uncle Cyril, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about great uncle Cyril. Well, as you can hear, he's half Dalek. Um, it was Franklin Roosevelt rather than your Uncle Cyril. It was yeah. from one of his fireside chats in 1933. And um, it, Franklin Roosevelt was the president. He came in during the Great Depression. He basically decided that government shouldn't stand idly by and not do anything to help people and put people back to work. And put people back to work, he did, including in the Civilian Conservation Corps, where uh, I think I'm right in saying that three million uh men and it was men uh, were put back to work in the in the great outdoors that clip was from ed's personal collection of fdr's fireside chats if you're ever lucky enough for ed to give you a lift somewhere he doesn't have music playing in his car he just has those on uh, on a loop completely right as well as sort of back copies of the Labour party conference <laughs> and also, and also, actually, the sort of teach yourself Italian CD, where I've never really got past the kind of first one, <laughs> which is "C'è una macchina," um, which we're all very good at saying, but we don't really get, we haven't really got too much past that. 
Um, anyway, the, the, the relevance of all this is that this week we're talking about youth unemployment and the impact of the crisis on young people. The Resolution Foundation projects that more than a million young people could be unemployed by the end of this year in the UK. We know that young people are always hit badly by recessions, but even more so in the current crisis, given young people are more likely to work in the hospitality industry that's shut down uh, and, and elsewhere. So we're exploring ideas for how to create opportunities for young people as we recover from this crisis. We're going to be looking at the lessons from uh, the past, including the New Deal in America in the 1930s and that civilian conservation corps that I mentioned. We're talking to historian David Woolner about those lessons. Then we're talking to Anna Smee from the Youth Futures Foundation and Kathleen Hennehan from the Resolution Foundation. We'll be asking them how government can address the problems of youth unemployment today. Then finally, we're looking at a really exciting idea for a youth environment service which could both address unemployment and help tackle the climate emergency. And we're talking to Martin Moore from King's College London. That all sounds good. Do you want to tell us about your reason to be cheerful this week? If you found yes. much cheer in the past yes. seven days? You know, I've got quite into the animal memes in this in this period. And uh, my son Daniel is turning 11 on the 2nd of June. And I think we've got, I wouldn't say it's the perfect present, but basically you can do a Zoom call with a goat for hire. And so we thought we'd have that, do that on his birthday, his little family thing. And basically, you, you can find out all about the goat's personalities. Uh, there's Mary, ambivalence, limited attention span, totally fine peeing in front of you. Uh, I think Cuthbert, is, who, who Justine's got her eye on, Cuthbert, young Cuthbert is the son of Shaking Susan, a naturally inquisitive fellow. Cuthbert likes to talk space exploration and what goat farming might look like on Mars. Excellent goat sci-fi knowledge, interest in all things space, travel, camera, headbutting. Anyway, basically, I think this is a farm that's obviously, you know, facing some difficulties as a result of coronavirus. And they've been relatively inventive uh, and you can get to spend time with a goat. You can also hire a goat if you've got a business meeting and you want the goat on your Zoom call as well. This is fantastic, especially if you've got a, a, diff, a difficult business meeting where maybe you've got some disappointing sales figures to show or something. They call it the dead cat strategy, don't they, where you put something uh, onto the table that is such a distraction that nobody talks about what was going on in the meeting already and they, that's now used as a political technique. This is far better, the, the live goat strategy. Very good. The live goat strategy replaces the dead cat strategy. I mean, Yeah, far more positive, far more on brand Linton Crosby look out jeff lloyd is coming to eat your lunch <laughs> but not your goat but but hopefully not your goat otherwise it would no longer be the live goat what's your reason to be cheerful uh, my reason to be cheerful is uh, so obviously my son's not at nursery at the moment so i'm spending more time with him even than i usually do uh, which means more screen time than we usually allow him and i found this great thing on cbb's called nick copes Popcast, where um, a friendly fella, probably of a similar age to us, uh, comes on and kids call in via video phone. It's all set up, but they, they sort of call in via video phone and give him a subject. And he writes a song on that subject and they, they do a lovely animation. And it's just really lovely preschool children's television. But I thought this guy looks, he's just got the look of somebody who in a former life would have been some kind of pop star or in a band. So I Googled him and he was in a band called The Candy Skins. Do you remember them? I, I got to say, I sort of preferred their early stuff before they, you know, had those artistic tensions. Well, they, they were from Oxford, and I'm, I'm guessing they came up in the late 80s when you would have been at university there. So you were probably down the front 
in the mosh Definitely. pit if there ever was a mosh pit at Candy Skins gigs. Um, and yeah, he was he was the uh, he was the guy from that band who I always enjoyed back in the day. And not only that, um, he comes from a show business family. His dad played Hopkirk in Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. Wow. Now I've piqued your interest. Yeah, that's definitely a reason to be cheerful. Can, can I ask you a question in this context of, of, of our children, which is, is it okay to be economical with the truth about the tooth fairy? The reason I ask is that Daniel, who's 10, lost a tooth. I don't think he told us. Um, he put the tooth under the pillow and, of course, nothing happened. <laughs> And but right. I've got to I've got to make a confession that I've gone to increasingly elaborate methods to try and keep the mythology of the tooth fairy going, including sort of saying that there's a free phone number where you've got to like ring in to say that there's been a tooth falling out and that there's been problems to do with, you know, the current sort of lockdown and crisis for the tooth. fairy. Exactly. I mean, that's it. The, the tooth fairies in lockdown, they're not considered a key worker. So, so that's that's why. Do you think that's an okay? Do you think? But what's the sort of balance of of what's the balance of kind of uh, you know uh, sort of what's sort of what's allowed? Oh, I think it's fine. I think people overthink this stuff. I think firstly he is testing a little bit anyway by not telling you, so he's figuring it out himself. But secondly, I think don't get too hung up about it because. You know, it's a good lesson to learn about life that life is just full of lies and disappointments anyway, isn't it? I mean, how would it be? How would you how just get, bear with me here? How would you feel if I said that I'd written a sort of an article which purported to be from The Guardian by Terry McCafferty and Bob Filling about the crisis that the tooth fairy was, fa- <laughs> was, was facing in, 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 in order to sort of make it kind of, you know, make it kind of credible? Would that be all right? Yeah, I think we'd all like to read that article. Can we put it in the newsletter? I'm not sure you could. Maybe, maybe Joel can. The, the problem is that I, I sort of, because I, I kind of, I kind of was in this sort of two minds about whether I was tr- pretending it was true or sort of just having a joke. So I left in Terry McCavity and Bob Filling. They then, they then Googled Bob Filling, and of course, Bob Filling doesn't sort of exist. So it's sort of stretching, <laughs> it's, it's stretching credibility. I felt like I needed a bit of a sort of raised eyebrow in it. I think I think yeah. the truth is that they want to carry on believing in it because they're worried about the sort of flow of fun stopping when they stop believing mm. in it. And so it's sort of slightly playing along with us. I think it's fine. And I think if we ever need a week off, what are they called? Bob McCavity and... Terry McCavity and Bob Filling. Terry McCavity and Bob Filling. They can, they can stand in for us. Yeah. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we're going to start by talking to David Walner, who is a professor of history at Marist College in New York. He is resident historian at the Roosevelt Institute and author of The Last 100 Days, FDR at War and at Peace. David, hello. Hi. Uh, great to speak with you, Jeff, and, and you as well, Ed. Where, where do we find you uh, socially distancing? Uh, I'm in a place called Rhinebeck, New York, which is a nice little village on the Hudson River, about 100 miles north of New York City. So uh, not a bad part of the world to be in right now. It could be worse. It could be worse. So um, we we started the podcast today by playing a clip of FDR setting out some of the the 
great plans from the the New Deal. I wondered if you could just help us by just explaining the background to the New Deal, both in general and then, you know, we can come on to uh, uh, what it was in relation to the problems of young people. But can you tell us about, you know, how, how it, the circumstances which led to it and, and what the basics of it were? Well, of course, by the time Roosevelt took office in March of 1933, uh, the United States was in the midst of the worst economic crisis of its history, right? Uh, unemployment nationwide was running at 25%, uh, but in cities like Detroit and Chicago, it was as high as 40 or 50%. And of course, uh, when Roosevelt took office, there was no real experience with, in the United States with the state intervening in the economy. I mean, the only real contact the American people had with the government was when they went to the post office. There was no Social Security, there was no unemployment insurance, there was no federal deposit insurance in the banks, very little regulation of the stock market, the financial sector, etc. So um, it really was kind of unfettered capitalism, and you were very much on your own. And the, the size of the crisis just completely overwhelmed any notion of people finding relief from private charity and so forth. So, you know, facing this in the, in the Democratic uh, Convention in the summer of 1932, Roosevelt made this famous pledge to give the, the American people a new deal. Um, and the new deal really represents this whole series of programs and reforms that Roosevelt put in place uh, during the 1930s. And it was you know, a terrible time for everybody. But can you talk to us specifically about how young people and their prospects were affected? Well, for young people, the Great Depression was particularly hard. Um, and in terms of unemployment, uh, for youth uh, between the ages of 16 and 24, uh, unemployment was actually higher uh, for them than it was for the national average. It was more like 30%. So th they were really uh, devastated by the, the Great Depression. And both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt were you know, really terrified that you, they would be losing a whole generation of young people. So what did the New Deal do specifically to address those concerns and youth unemployment? Well, one of the things, one of the most famous programs and actually one of the most uh, popular programs was the establishment of what was called the Civilian Conservation Corps. You know, many of these ideas actually Roosevelt tested out when he was governor of the state of New York from 1928 to 1932. Uh, Roosevelt loved nature. Uh, he lived in this beautiful estate on the Hudson River overlooking the, the Hudson and the Catskill Mountains in the distance. He liked to call himself Forester-in-Chief um, because he was a great believer in conservation and planting trees. Um, and so, you know, when we think of the Civilian Conservation Corps, we think of this reforestation program. The, the, uh, after 100 years of unregulated timber harvesting, you know, the United States forests were decimated. Uh, so um, Roosevelt had this idea that he would recruit young men in, in the cities who, again, concerned about idleness, concerned about uh, the damaging effects of, of people not being able to work, um, and take them out into the countryside. You know, Roosevelt was a great believer in the restorative qualities of nature. So this idea, and this is very typical of the New Deal, when we think of the CCC, we think of uh, this environmental program. It's like the first green jobs program, right? You're going to reforest America. But it was much more than that. It was also an urban relief program. Uh, the, the CCCers got paid $25 or $30 a month, but they had to send $25 a home to their families. Uh, many of these young men were uneducated. So they discovered, well, they need an education. They, many of them couldn't read or write properly. 
So they built school rooms and then they hired teachers and they would have classes in the evenings. They had hearty meals. The average CCC were put on 12 pounds of weight uh, during the course of their tenure. Um, so over 3 million young men uh, served in the Civilian Conservation Corps. And uh, by the time it ended in 1943, it was one of the most popular programs of the entire New Deal. What was the National Youth Administration? Well, that was the second major uh, uh, program that Roosevelt initiated. This he, he um, executed by executive order in 1935. Um, it was under the auspices of the WPA. The Works Progress Administration, sorry, just for our listeners. Yeah, the Works Progress Administration. One of the things that, um, that they tried to do was to keep young people in school. You know, if unemployment is high, you don't want young people entering the workforce. So they put in place a program of assistance, a kind of work-study program. Again, no one had ever done this before. Uh, hiring young people to work in school offices and cafeterias, do maintenance work, janitorial work, uh, both in high school and in college, so they could stay in school um, and finish their education. And by 1937, over 400,000 young people were receiving assistance through the NYA uh, educational programs. Uh, but then, of course, there were also young people who were not in school, who were needing to work. Uh, many of them were unskilled, of course, because they hadn't acquired a skill yet. So um, they had to uh, put together job training programs, job placement agencies, and, and get started on trying to get them into uh, gainful employment. Um, all of these uh, programs, by the way, were locally administered, so local communities could try to figure out what was the most useful work that could be done for them. Um, and uh, in 1939, uh, Roosevelt really solved the, this problem of, um, of uh, youth unemployment in terms of skills by suggesting that they uh, train them as machinists and skilled industrial workers to work in the burgeoning defense industry. Uh, so they started recruiting people in 1939 nationwide. They put a big emphasis on African-Americans and women, bringing them into the mainstream industrial workforce. And so when we get to the Second World War, literally hundreds of thousands of machinists and NYA-trained workers were helping turn the United States into what FDR called the great arsenal of democracy. Let me just pick up on, on some of those points. So I was quite struck that you said the Civilian Conservation Corps, three million men. Um, was it only for men? It sounds like some of the programs were then extended. And, and, and just say a little bit more, David, about what they were doing. What was the range of activity? Right. Uh, it was an urban program for men. Um, uh, it, it also hired, uh, they also enrolled uh, African-American men and, and Caucasian men. So it, it, it had a multi-racial uh, component. In fact, originally the programs were segregated, but then they started integrating them, particularly in the North. So that was a step forward. You know, um, as I said, with this terrible unemployment, um, they wanted to get people to work as soon as possible. You know, Roosevelt was a great believer in the dignity of work. He wanted people to be given that dignity. So they would go out and they would have to build their own camps. They would, they would build roads uh, into the, the um, areas that they were working. They were involved in wildlife protection. They were involved in the restoration of historic sites and parks, in the development of national parks. Um, and, you know, if we take the totality of the Roosevelt years. And let's not forget, much like global warming today, uh, Roosevelt also faced an environmental catastrophe in the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, which was absolutely devastating uh, to the farmers in the Midwest. 
people were literally dying of what they called dust bowl pneumonia, uh, the lungs filling with dust. Caused by drought. Caused by drought and caused by over uh, overplowing, uh, by poor farming techniques during the First World War and the, the economic boom of the of the twenties. So, uh, how do you how do you stop that? And and uh, they planted over two hundred and eighteen million trees from Texas Panhandle to the Canadian border, over eighteen thousand miles of shelter belts, and it worked. It's extraordinary. It 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 worked. So you would judge these programs a success, I assume, from what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely a success. Um, and if you talk, I mean, most of them have died now. I don't think there are any CCCers alive or people that worked in the National Youth Administration, but um, uh, their memories of this program uh, were extraordinary. I mean, it, you know, they, they felt it was a lifesaver um, and, a, and, a, and a life changer for them. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, for example, in the National Youth Administration, they set up an Office of a Minority Affairs. Um, uh, run by a black woman, Mary McLeod Bethune. I mean, that was just unprecedented uh, to bring uh, young African-American men and women uh, into the National Youth Administration. And this was a massive shift in attitude to the role of government compared to what had gone before. I know that's a sort of really basic and important thing about the New Deal, but I think it's just worth emphasizing. Absolutely. As I said earlier, um, you know, there really was no precedent for government intervention in the economy. And so what Roosevelt was facing was, you know, how do you make uh, capitalism work for the average American? You know, what do you do? How do you mitigate the worst excesses of unfettered capitalism? So it's just one thing after another, an enormous amount of creative energy that really transformed the relationship between the American people and their government. That's really the key. Now, of course, David, we're not just talking to you as a piece of interesting history, because very sadly, and probably in a way that you couldn't have envisaged, and nor could I, the experience of what happened in the 30s with Roosevelt is 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 obviously speaks to this very difficult moment that we're in. I, I think I'm right in saying that we now have 36 million Americans out of work, 7 million young people uh, out of work. T- talk to us about the lessons of the New Deal and the and in, and in particular Civilian Conservation Corps today, not just for the United States, but for us here too? Well, you know, um, I, I, you know I, th- I think I'm safe in saying that both the United States and, and Great Britain uh, suffer from a certain uh, uh, lack of, uh, of maintenance of infrastructure, uh, physical infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, look at the WPA, uh, almost 600,000 miles of highway, right? 122,000 bridges, um, 8,000 airports. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. As I said, no one had ever really done this before in the United States. So this was this active use of government. Um, when Roosevelt gave his first inaugural address, he's famous for the line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But the reality is that the, the line that got the biggest applause during the course of that address was this nation is calling for action and action now. So for young people today, I mean, we are facing an environmental uh, challenge of unprecedented proportions. There's tremendous need for uh, innovation in the energy sector and, and green jobs programs. Uh, and I think if Roosevelt were around today, uh, he would look at this as kind of holistically and say, we need, you know, again, we need to marshal the resources of the nation to meet these challenges. And David, obviously, that leads me on to the question, which is what do you make of the calls in the U.S.? 
and in the UK for, for but particularly about the US uh, for, for a Green New Deal? I think Roosevelt would very much support the idea of the Green New Deal. And it's very similar to the, the philosophy behind the New Deal. As I said, these programs were multifaceted. The CCC providing not only reforestation and environmental uh, programs, but urban relief and, and education. So there's this um, deeper thinking going behind the use of government intervention in the economy um, that I think uh, current political leaders tend to lack. Um, you know, simply providing unemployment insurance is really not enough. I think people should think more deeply about uh, where can we um, stimulate the economy in ways that will bring uh, a better future for this young generation that's facing this enormous economic challenge. Well, David Woolner, it's really inspiring uh, to talk to you about what Roosevelt did sort of massively um, uh, ahead of his time and relevant today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. It's been my pleasure. Uh, uh, great seeing you. To talk about the challenge we face in terms of youth unemployment, we're joined now by Anna Smee, who's chief executive of the Youth Futures Foundation, which was established last year to tackle youth unemployment in England, and Kathleen Hennehan, who's research and policy analyst at the Resolution Foundation. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thank you. Um, Anna, let's start with you, you, your organisation had only recently been set up when the crisis began. What, what, what is the Youth Futures Foundation and what's the story behind it? That's right. Yeah, we were set up with a £90 million endowment uh, from Dormant Assets, which is the money that uh, some of us might have left behind in bank accounts over the years. So if you've ever abandoned a few pounds in a bank account when you switched, then eventually it gets handed over to the Reclaim Fund and then they give it to charitable purposes, uh, one of which is to support young people. Um, so we were set up to get young people who face discrimination or disadvantage into work. Obviously, you were set up before the crisis, but but we know, and, and Kathleen will talk to this, um, we know how serious the situation now is. What, what, what does it look like from your perspective? Yes, that's right. Um, we already knew there were 750,000 young people outside of training and work before COVID hit. Um, and now we estimate there's probably at least 600,000 further young people will find themselves out of work this year. And as you say, I'm sure Kathleen can talk much more about that. We're particularly worried that young people are already saying to us that they're being furloughed or made redundant at a higher rate than other age groups. Um, and the prospects for them don't look fantastic because many of them work in service industries, hospitality, retail, which have been especially hard hit. Um, and job centres tend to be really equipped to get people back into jobs in those sectors as well. So there's going to be a double whammy here where there's a drop in demand and an increase in young people looking for jobs. So, Kathleen, a lot of expectation here on you. Uh, what does your research at the Resolution Foundation show about the impact that the current crisis is having on young people's job prospects? Um, yeah, as I think as Anna rightly pointed out, from a from a big picture lens, it's it's really quite worrying. Um, so our research focused on eighteen to twenty four year olds, um, and we found that you know over the coming months we can expect the number of unemployed eighteen to twenty four year olds to more than double. Um, it will, in all likelihood, exceed well over a million, which is something that we really haven't seen since the 1980s. Um, and I think, as Anna pointed out, you know, a big reason for this is because young people, and particularly non-graduates, tend to get their start in these sectors like hospitality, retail, arts and recreation, and that have been so badly hit currently, and actually we don't really expect to recover anytime soon. And, and do you expect non-graduates then, from what you're saying, to take a much bigger hit than graduates? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth saying that, you know, we expect all young people to be hit by this. Um, but when we look at what happened in the last crisis, um, you tended to see graduates shuffle into those jobs that non-graduates typically would have taken. So, you know, your hospitality retail roles and non-grads were a bit more left out in the lurch. Now that those sectors are really struggling, um, everyone will be, you know, left worse off. But we probably expect that when vacancies do start to open up again, um, employers are probably going to be biased towards those with higher level qualifications. Just to be clear about this, the problem we've got is not just the the, the problem you might get in a in a in a in a recession we've had before, which is people being made redundant is you've got an, you've got a problem of, of of outflow from unemployment haven't you you've got a problem yeah. that there just aren't the vacancies talk a little bit to that kathleen yeah so we've seen a huge fall in vacancies and one of the things that's really worrying is that we've already had a huge number of people as anna said seven hundred fifty thousand young people who are unemployed um and there's nowhere there well in terms of inflows there there is nowhere for them to flow into the moment and obviously that will hit non-graduates particularly particularly hard what's the scale of that kathleen the fall in the vacancies or is, is there a measure of that yeah so i think in terms of the flow of new vacancies coming onto the market it was down 80 percent as of two weeks ago and it's across the board right um some of the research that that resolution foundation just published and um, went and looked back at actually change in total vacancies not the inflow of vacancies across sectors. And what you tend to see is that, you know, obviously it was those hospitality retail roles that fell by nearly 100%. And, and obviously to a lesser extent, we saw that in sort of professional, scientific and technical roles. But, um, you know, the, the, the crux of the issue is, is really in those sort of uh, lower, lower qualification type, type industries. And can you remind us what happened in 2008 with regards to young people's job prospects? You mentioned their uh, graduates taking jobs that were typically done by non-graduates. What, what, what else happened and what are the similarities and perhaps differences to today? Yeah, so one of the things that we've really been concerned about is unemployment in the here and now um, for, for young people and then actually how that, affected pe- that, how that affects people for years to come. Um, so last time round, um, unemployment or so unemployment rose um, amongst grads and non-grads, but actually the the, the scale of that rise was was a lot larger um, for non-graduates. And actually, even even as many as three years after they left full-time education, the unemployment rate for non-grads um, was about seventeen percent. Now, if you compare that with people who left education during better times, so we focus on 2013, the unemployment rate at that same period of time after having left education was 11%. Um, Now, when we compare different cohorts of graduates, there is a little bit of a difference in employment rates, in in unemployment rates, but it's it's, it's much smaller. Um, And obviously that affects pay too, because if you don't get onto that, if you don't get onto that, career ladder than you would that you would have otherwise expected to you're probably going to go into a lower paid role um, than you would have done absent a crisis and so we actually see that you know their their levels of pay were a lot lower um for people who graduated you know in the midst of a crisis than those who left so this is when people talk about long-term scarring this, this yeah is what that means yeah yeah it's not the here and now it's it's how it affects you for years to come does it affect you for your whole career yeah, so this is one of the things that, that is actually really worrying. So for those 2009 um, non-grads, they still, even six years after having left education, they still 
have a higher unemployment rate than people six years after having left education who graduated in, in 2013. In terms of what we'd expect through pay, um, it affects both non-grads and graduates for at least you know four to five years. So in terms of your lifetime earnings, then yeah, yeah, we it very well could have an effect over the over a person's life. So we have an idea of how it, it will likely affect graduates and non-graduates. What about different variations within young people, social groups and so on? Yes, we can already see that it's going to impact young people in different regions of the UK very differently, I think. Um, the unemployment data that came out from ONS last week, um, which shows the biggest spike in unemployment since the 1940s, um, showed that it was a dramatically bigger impact, for example, in the north of England uh, and the Midlands than in the southeast. Um, and I think there's also an element of you know, which regions have been hit hardest by COVID and how confident people therefore feel going back to work uh, in a job where they have to actually be physically present, like warehousing, delivery drivers, etc. Um, there's also a big variation between um, those young people that might have a, a reason why they can't get back to work, for example, issues around immunity, um, young people who've got illnesses or disabilities that make them much more vulnerable and would therefore find it difficult to go back. So, so this is a sense of the scale of the problem and the dangers of not acting. Anna, talk to us now about what uh, you are advocating at uh, the Youth Futures Foundation for what government should be doing. Yeah, we are very keen for government, obviously, to see this as a number one priority. So first and foremost, we'd like them to be unlocking funding. Um, and we think it should be a cross-government initiative. So it's not just about Department for Work and Pensions. We need them to be working hand-in-hand hand with the Department for Education. You know, 50% of the young people leaving Year 13 this year will expect to go straight into a job under normal circumstances, not to go on to higher education. And they're going to leave without having completed the academic year and without having any career advice available to them. Um, so that's crucial. Um, we need government to recognise that young people need support for the whole journey. So this isn't just a question of them arriving at a Job Centre Plus um, and being signposted towards you know, an opportunity. Many of these young people will actually need a bit more help than that to understand what they're trying to achieve in their career, to make sure that they start in the right kind of job, that they understand career progression opportunities um, and that they stick in that job as well. That they don't bounce out of it within a few weeks. Um, otherwise, that can be very challenging. And talk to us about the what the Labour government did in 2008, Anna, which was the Future Jobs Fund, and sort of how successful that was, what we can learn from it, what we could do better. Yeah, so the Future Jobs Fund was very successful, actually. It's one of the few big initiatives that's been um, properly evaluated in a meaningful way using randomised controlled trials and evidence to work. Um, in particular, it supported young people into either volunteering um, or a job uh, and ensured that if they'd been unemployed for nine months, there was a guaranteed place for them. Um, and the reason that it was effective was because it was quite personalised. There was an element of choice for those young people um, and they received support to select an appropriate pathway for them. Um, there was some wage subsidy as part of it. So if they took a job, um, those jobs were often subsidised. So the employer could take the young person on for a lower cost than normal. Um, but then they were encouraged to retain that young person longer term without that subsidy. And again, there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that wage subsidies, as a general rule, are an effective approach. Personalised support is a very effective approach. And Anna, do you think we should be guaranteeing young people um, jobs, given what Kathleen's warned us about in terms of the long-term scarring effects? 
Youth Futures Foundation, we think that a jobs guarantee for young people who've been out of work for six months is really important. Um, that provides the opportunity for them to have presented as being out of work and received additional support initially to help find a job themselves. Um, most people manage to find work within 13 weeks. So actually for a lot of people, that will be sufficient. Um, but given the exceptional circumstances we're in and the barriers that many young people face, um, for those that are still out of work after six months, it's important then to take stronger action. Talk to us about one part of this, which is the which I'm quite keen on, which is the role of the kind of environmental side as part of this um, future jobs fund. I mean, it, it, it strikes me that there is a massive amount to be done as the country transitions to uh, net zero emissions. We've got to do that work. How much of a role can that play? Yes, I think that's a really interesting um, area to explore. I think there there is the short term and the long term um, aspect to this. So in the immediate term, obviously, the areas where we most need young people to take up work actually are in agriculture and in health and social care. But in the longer term, exactly as you're describing, um, looking for jobs that enable us to transition to a more sustainable future would be fantastic. Talk a bit more about agriculture and health and social care. Um, So at the moment, obviously, because um, of COVID and longer term as well, because of changes to immigration policy, it's going to be challenging to get enough staff to be out there picking fruit and vegetables. Um, And it also feels like a really fantastic opportunity for many of our young people. You know, lots of them would like, ideally, to go abroad, do a gap year, um, have a chance to kind of build their skills and socialise before they go off to university or get a permanent job. Um, So I think there might be a chance there to look for a big programme and a way of connecting those young people. Um, But it's going to take some careful planning and thought about social distancing and young people being able to travel away from home and how we would accommodate them. Kathleen, uh, something you're keen on is government supporting young people to stay in education. Can you explain how this helps and, and what exactly you'd like to see government doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've sort of thought about policy in two ways, you know, policy to help young people stay on for next year and policy to help those who inevitably will be entering the jobs market. Um, but in terms of helping people stay on in education, I think we know that a large proportion of today's leavers are going to leave with lower level qualifications and that even in the best of times, they'll struggle to find meaningful work and, and to progress in that work. Um, so rather than them sort of exit into unemployment in an activity, we think it's a really great time for government to consider um, proposals that will allow them to sort of stay on in full-time study. Um, So for instance, the Association of Colleges are talking about a September promise. That means that every person who wants to stay on in education can have a place to do so. And, you know, this this benefits young people in a number of ways, just obviously benefits their skills, their human capital, and it makes sure that they'll be more productive people when when they do um, enter the workforce. But also, you know, the opportunity cost to studying while there are so few vacancies and such a little such a little odds of them finding work obviously much lower right now. Um, so we think it's a, it's a really good time for people to do so. Um, but obviously there are a lot of barriers to that, and, and particularly for those people who want to study in further education colleges, which you know tend to offer um, less in terms of maintenance support that will allow them to study and work full time. Something we were wondering about is, is we've seen uh, universities say that they're going to do tuition online and yet uh, they're still charging the full tuition fees. Do you think that is going to have an effect on whether young people choose to go to university? Yes, I think there is a risk of that. I imagine for a lot of young people who are taking on significant debt to go to university, it's going to make them stop and think twice. 
Um, I think it'll be really important for, from an economy point of view that they don't do that. They do take up their place at university and therefore don't find themselves out of work at a really challenging time um, because of all the scarring effects that Kathleen's talked about. Um, but there is a reality that that is a big investment for many young people, particularly those from low income backgrounds, and that may not be the decision that they make. We do have a big worry that um, that young people might look at the opportunities that are afforded to them um, in terms of studying with their colleagues and having one to one tuition um, and be nervous about taking up their place. Um, another big group of young people that we might worry about is graduates who otherwise would go on to take a master's degree, particularly in times of crisis. And obviously, you know, this isn't the most desperate group of young people. They tend to be better off on average. But in the last crisis, we did see a sharp rise in the number of young people um, staying on in education for one more year after they've graduated university. And we would have, under normal expectations, you know, expected to see that again. Um, but given changes to how lectures are going to look like next year, um, it, it's, it's very unclear that they will do so. Kathleen, we talked earlier about some of the scarring effects um, of not acting on this. Talk to us about the positive effects of acting, both not just for the young people themselves, but for our economy and society as a whole. And that's really a question to both of you, actually. This has garnered huge amounts of attention on the need to actually allow some young people to stay on an education more and the need to help those who, who have you know been out of work for some time and the greater number of people we expect to see so to, to we expect to see in that position. So I think from our perspective, just the fact that people are talking about this and we have policymakers say, should we have maintenance loans for kids who want to study in further education? Should we have a jobs guarantee? That narrative taking hold is really positive for young people's future employment prospects. And Anna? I think that's really true. Um, I think yeah, opening opportunities for young people in new sectors that they wouldn't have been able to access before and simplifying pathways into training and work would be a huge benefit. OK, Anna Smee, um, Kathleen Hannan, it's clearly a massive challenge, but you've given us some, I think, reasons for optimism. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. And we're going to speak now to Martin Moore, who is Director of the Centre for the Study of Media, Communication and Power at King's College in London. But more excitingly for us today, he is a man with an idea, which is a potential reason to be cheerful. He's a man of many parts. I mean, I know Martin, but I mean, he's obviously, you know, he's Renaissance man, really. A polymath. A polymath, that's right. You blushing, Martin. I, I'm certainly blushing because uh, because I'm feeling I'm feeling very uh, overextended right now because I'm talking about something which is something I I I, 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 uh, I it's an idea that I've had which takes me a long way from my new, usual um, sort of um, field of expertise. But you've got good bookcase credibility, so that must that must count for something. <laughs> well, thank you. Ed is just saying this because he's looking at your bookcase on this Zoom call and he's spotting a lot of books that he owns. That's exactly. How exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so tell us about the idea. It's a youth environment service. Uh, yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's called the Youth Environment Service. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of it's an idea that's based on um, a national service, um, but instead of being um, focused on defence and security, it's, it's focused on the environment. So the idea is that uh, every uh, 18 to 25 year old um, or around that age would have an opportunity to spend a year uh, working on um, uh, an environment project um, for the purposes of uh, you know, addressing or at least slowing some of the climate crisis we're going through 
um, making the country more uh, resilient to, to, to floods, to, um, to, to fires, hurricanes, and of course, pandemics, um, and to trying to make our way of life more sustainable in the long term. And hopefully will also mean that we kind of raise the whole understanding and awareness of the problems, but also practical ways to deal with them um, around the whole population. And what would those practical ways look like in terms of what, what work would the young people be doing? So um, I think, you know, again, when I, when I thought about this, there were five kind of big areas that I thought people could contribute. Um, and I think, but certainly this would, this would need to be adapted given the coronavirus crisis because everything, everything has to change, I suppose. But I mean, the sort of the five areas that I was thinking of um, were around, um, one was around protecting. So it was around uh, ways to, to protect against um, environmental degradation and damage, whether it's, whether it's uh, building flood defences, whether it's building protection against fires and whether it's, whether it's just, you know, insulating homes around the country to make people make homes more sustainable. Um, the second was about restoring. Um, so it was about restoring uh, lands and waterways and, uh, you know, removing plastic from the seas. It was about, about you know, restoring brownfield sites um, to, again, to, to, to increase sustainability. The third was exploring, which was, which was to uh, uh, fund enough technological and, um, uh, uh, and scientific research to specifically to address some of the practical problems of climate change. A fourth was around sustaining, um, which is planting trees, growing food, um, creating sustainable systems. And then a fifth one was about supporting those who have already been uh, hurt or damaged by climate change. Um, uh, so, for example, by the recent floods um, or otherwise. We, we're talking on this episode about uh, youth jobs and youth unemployment. And your idea is certainly something that, that speaks to me. Um, the slightly peculiar thing, as we referred to at the beginning, is you usually study media and reform of the media. And you and I have worked together on this in the past. How did you get into this? Uh, very good question. I mean, I come to this um, really as just someone who's, who's very anxious about it. As you say, I normally teach media and politics and do research around that. Um, but I was invited last year to, to join a whole series of conversations which were organised by um, an American uh, foundation called the Bagrun Institute. Um, and they'd gathered together a really very interesting and eclectic bunch of people, um, sort of uh, academics and politicians and philosophers and writers and uh, to, to try to think about many of the uh, big problems that we're facing society and particularly democratic societies and, and how to address them. Um, and then a few people um, uh, started discussing the benefits of national service and conscription for the for the purposes of things like social cohesion and dealing with polarization and, and, and dealing with some of the issues of inequality. And that was when I kind of, I suppose, a bit of a light bulb went off and I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, it doesn't, for me at least, it doesn't make sense to to try and recreate national service in the way it worked in the 20th century. Um, but actually, if you rethink it for the 21st century and you rethink it in terms of the environment, then suddenly actually um, it both achieves those goals, but it, it you know, starts to hopefully address the much bigger goal, which is about, it's about the climate emergency. And just to be clear about this, you're not saying this is an obligatory programme. I mean, you're seeing it as a voluntary I mean, programme. It's, it's, it's for different countries to decide. So quite a lot of democracies already have um, uh, 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 national service or conscription. So you know, Switzerland, um, Brazil, South Korea, Israel. So, so countries that already have that might want to adapt aspects of 
their national service, their, their conscription for that. But other countries um, uh, where there is no national conscription um, uh, almost certainly would want to do it in terms of a voluntary basis. But I think the key is that the opportunity is open to, to all young people. I think this has to be necessarily um, a, a very broad program uh, and include everyone in it. Have you had much pick up on this uh, proposal? Well, I mean, one of the fortunate things, I guess, about <laughs> where I had the idea was that a lot of the people there were, uh, were, were, were um, you know, connected to different walks of life. And so some of them uh, who were interested started already having conversations with and there was a very international crowd, too. So they, they started having conversations with various people in different countries. Um, uh, as I understand it, um, uh, the, um, there have been some conversations with, with international institutions like the UN um, who appear interested in it and are talking about it. Um, uh, since, since the coronavirus started, um, one of the things that's been striking is that numbers, a number of people have started talking about the idea of national service or conscription or there are sometimes some moments where 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 maybe maybe well I, I hope at least maybe uh, an idea's time has come and, uh, and 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 many people have a similar idea at a similar time um, and and my hope is that there it gains it gains it snowballs um, and it and it really takes off but I'd love other people to get interested in the idea and to just and 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 to sort of collaborate and to try and work it up and to try and create something from this because because if there was ever a moment for it it seems like it was now. Well, that's a good moment to end on. Uh, Martin Moore, polymath, bookcase credibility, media expert. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. So what did you think? Well, obviously, the prospect of youth unemployment on the scale we're talking about is terrifying. But that being said, I found some real reason to be cheerful in there. Um I loved hearing about the New Deal, which, I, I, you know, I, I know some uh, some aspects of the history of the New Deal. But what particularly struck me on that was just how far it was from what the American state was typically doing at that point. Just you, you think of America being a much more small state country than European countries, but just that that in that context fdr was able to do that was incredibly inspiring when you think about you know we've lived with these years of austerity and you can maybe look at the current government and say but are they going to do anything radical well they could it's there um even the response to the coronavirus crisis has shown as we talked about in previous episodes you know in a crisis you can make these bold choices. So I thought there was some cause for optimism there. And, and I just, I agree that it was so inspiring to hear from David and just, you know, one one knows about FDR, at least I know about FDR in a sort of theoretical sense, but just being reminded, you know, three million, albeit that it was men, but, you know, three million men, you know, in that civilian conservation corps, um, you know, 218 million trees, you know, that that is... It's just the scale of ambition. And I think I actually think the biggest thing I take out of all four of our guests is sort of the emergency and the scale of ambition required. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. If you've got any thoughts on this week's episode or ideas for future episodes, you can go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com, which will give you all the ways to get in touch, and you can sign up for our newsletter on there too. I love our newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter. If you need to hear more about the Tooth Fairy, sign up. Uh, This comes from Frida, who says... Many greetings from my parents' house in the rural southwest of Germany, where I have been stuck for almost three months now. Earlier this year, our family dog, Charlie, died, whom we had for more than 15 years. Oh, how sad. It is sad. I'm sorry. R.I.P. Charlie. He was a good boy. Now, uh, since the lockdown, my brother and I have both been stranded at home, and we've desperately tried to convince our parents to get another dog. But since we're both living somewhere else, they weren't giving in. We have no good arguments, really, except that life without a dog is pointless. But thanks to you, Ed, we have now got an imaginary dog called oh, Chutney. Fantastic! Chutney's had a baby! Immaculate conception. We're breeding Chutneys all over the place. Chutney puppies. Yeah. Um, Frida says, my mum and I went for a run with or him mangoes. Earlier. Mangoes, as they're known. Yeah. Uh, and my dad is telling us kids off when we're trying to feed him at the dinner table. Oh, Our neighbours must think we've completely lost it. Anyway, I just wanted to thank Ed for this idea. Honestly, that's that's so that's that's that, Jeff. That is heartwarming news. That is heartwarming news, and more heartwarming news uh, comes from Debbie Scholes. Uh, his subject line is fundamentally good. I just want to let you know about a heartwarming story. We love those. I was listening to the latest podcast about people being fundamentally good when I was walking my dog this evening. Now, you've got to bear with us here because it's quite convoluted, this story. We Is live this in a Aust- real dog or an imaginary dog? I think it's a real dog. We live in Australia and she found, this is the dog, a rainbow lorikeet on the ground, which is not their behaviour when they're healthy, so I knew something was wrong. I tied up my, brackets, real dog and ran off to a nearby house to ask if I could borrow a towel to rescue the bird. The people at the house got me a towel and asked if there was anything else they could do. And just as I was leaving again, my real dog, Nala, arrived. She had slipped her collar and come to find me. Another man who was walking his own dogs, also real, I think, checked if she was mine. He had seen her loose and kept an eye on her. The man from the house where they left me the towel followed me back to Nala's collar and led me to make sure we were okay. 
Then after rescuing the bird and asking for advice on a local Facebook group about what to do next, a few people told me what to do and one offered to take care of the bird, which is also real, overnight if I needed them too. So I encountered several kind and helpful people during the course of one podcast about how people are fundamentally good. And she's got a lovely emoji of the bird. The bird is currently safe and cosy in a box and will be alive and will be collected in the morning. Fantastic. Rutger Bregman would be proud of you That's all. That's a great story, isn't it? Yeah, it T- is. Totally. Uh, totally. And just very quickly, this, this from Twitter comes from Hermione, who says, the GP I just spoke to about my UTI sounded exactly like Ed Miliband. Oh, no. I felt like I was Are you in- sure that's not <laughs> UBI? <laughs> um, she says, I felt like I was in a surreal episode of Cheerful Podcast. Maybe I could be Minister for Bladder Infections under Jeff Lloyd's benign dictatorship. I mean, I can only apologise. That must be really disturbing. But are you available for medical consultations if people are in a pinch? I mean, I think I'm available, but I don't think it's advisable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, All right. you know, what about, what like about Donald UV? Trump and hydrochloroxine or whatever it's called. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, here we are in the outro. And I think you've got some... Um, sort of uh what do they call it um uh you've got some topiary is that right so i had a beard trimming accident yeah. this week usually under normal circumstances i would go to the barber to get my beard trim so i've not used an electric beard trimmer in yeah. years and i don't really know what i'm doing yeah. but i ordered one online and i trimmed my beard the other night and it just went very badly wrong very quickly it was bushy on one side it was almost you know bare on the other side i walked in to show my wife and she was horrified by what had done to myself she tried to then you know uh, uh, she tr- tried to then uh, dig herself out of the hole by going no no it, it looks fine it looks fine sorry i was just distracted when you came in but you know we can just see on somebody's face she's thinking what have i done how can i be expected to look at that until the beard grows back so she said why don't you trim it into a mustache which i did but that didn't go very well either. I think it looks like... Do you remember after the Brexit referendum, Nigel Farage grew a moustache? No, I don't. It's, it's almost as unimpressive as that. But, you know, the funny thing is that when you sent it to me, I was absolutely gobsmacked and thought it looked, it looked totally different. But I'm wondering now whether that was just an illusion of it being sent to me in black and white and you looking and having a sort of sad face on well, it's, it's starting to grow back as well. I think what you're probably responding to is that without any kind of stubble or beard, my face just sort of blends into my neck. I've just got this sort of, sort of one big blob of a head and neck. Um, but at least there's a I bit of an outline. You are being quite there. hard on yourself, actually. It wasn't. I think you look lovely anyway. You are. Have you ever ever um, experimented with facial hair? Yes, don't remember, was it famously, well, obviously not that Oh, of famously, course, yes. After the 2015 general election, yeah. Yeah, the breakdown look. Discovered in Australia with a beard. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, yeah. And then, actually, soon after that, beards became very fashionable. And you, was, you credit yourself. Well, I don't really know. I think I was at the crest That's of, for other I, people to do. I was, yeah, I was at the crest of the wave. Yeah. Um, beard. Peak beard. Well, shall yeah. we uh, shall we thank our our guests? Let's do that. Uh, I'd like to thank David Woolner, Anna Smee, Kathleen Hennahan, and Martin Moore. And Emma Caution produces our podcast. I want to salute Emma in particular this week because she has to take Ed's recordings, which have been fraught 
with difficulties. You, bit, you're ropey, really, bit ropey you're, dopey. You're really struggling with the equipment. I'm yes, I almost am. thinking that maybe a good idea would be for Emma to turn up at your house every week and push a microphone through the letterbox and then at the end of every recording retrieve it and, and take it home herself rather than deal with what she's been dealing with with you. Well, I think it's also you've been having to deal with it too, so I do apologise. Oh, it's fine for me. I just have to sit here while you flap. But that's yeah. you, you've done that with me plenty of times in the past. Um, uh, but thank you to Emma and, of course, to Joel Pierce, who uh, researches all the stuff for the podcast with backup from Joe Kenyon and Zoe Gelber. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Hull. He's been Bob Filling. He's been Jonathan McCavity. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. 